Thank you guys uh, for being here, and good morning again. Uh, I'm genuinely excited to be able to bring the word to you guys this morning. Uh, in the previous times that I've done this, I felt just a, an overwhelmingly like in your gut nervousness, and I don't feel that today, which is really freeing and relieving. It's really cool. You don't have to clap, but thank you for doing that. <laughs> and so if you are, are new or visiting, uh, last year we went through the book of Genesis, and this year we are going through the first half of Exodus, and today we land uh, in Exodus 7. And before we dive into the text, um, and this message is called A Hardened Heart, I want to start with a verse that Smiley ended with last week because it deals specifically with the heart. And so Romans 10, 9 through 10, reads, If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. Now, obviously, this verse mentions the heart twice, but there is no single definition for the heart in the Bible. Instead, it's spread out throughout many verses. And because it's mentioned hundreds of times in the Bible, it clearly has a level of importance and significance to God. So, in short, the heart is the whole person as a thinking, planning, willing, feeling, worshiping being. The heart shapes our intellect, our emotions, and our morality. And Ezekiel tells us that the heart can be tender and soft or hard as stones, which means that there are times when the heart can be in step with God's own heart, yet there are also times that it can be rebellious, callous, untrustworthy, and idolatrous. And it's within the heart that God works in us and through us. So the question that I want you to consider this morning is this. How is your heart? Is it troubled, as it says in Luke 24, 38? Do you feel the peace of God guarding your heart, as it says in Philippians 4, 7? Is God the strength of your heart, as it says in Psalm 73, 26? Are you taking a cue from Proverbs 3, 5 and trusting in the Lord with all your heart? Or do you feel more Jeremiah 17, 9-ish, that your heart is deceitful and beyond cure? Whatever the case and wherever you are today, let's open God's word and see what he says about the heart. Now, the chapter break is a little bit weird from 6 to 7, and so I'm actually going to start back at the end of chapter 6 in verse 28. You can follow along in your Bible, uh, and the words will also be on the screen. Now, when the Lord spoke to Moses in Egypt, he said to him, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, everything I tell you. But Moses said to the Lord, Since I speak with faltering lips, why would Pharaoh listen to me? Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. You are to say everything I command you, and your brother Aaron is to tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go out of his country. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, 
And though I multiply my signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt, and with mighty acts of judgment, I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded them. Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 when they spoke to Pharaoh. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, perform a miracle, then say to Aaron, take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh's and it will become a snake. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded him. Aaron threw his staff down in front of Pharaoh and his officials, and it became a snake. Pharaoh then summoned wise men and sorcerers, and the Egyptian magicians also did the same things by their secret arts. Each one threw down his staff, and it became a snake. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Yet Pharaoh's heart became hard, and he would not listen to them, just as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is unyielding. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he goes out to the river. Confront him on the bank of the Nile, and take in your hand the staff that was changed into a snake. Then say to him, the Lord, the God of Hebrews, has sent me to say to you, let my people go so that they may worship me in the wilderness. But until now, you have not listened. This is what the Lord says. By this you will know that I am the Lord. With the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water of the Nile, and it will be changed into blood. The fish in the Nile will die, and the river will stink. The Egyptians will not be able to drink its water. The Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the streams and canals, over the ponds and all the reservoirs, and they will turn to blood. Blood will be everywhere in Egypt, even in vessels of wood and stone. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord had commanded. He raised the staff in the presence of Pharaoh and officials and struck the water of the Nile. And all the water was changed into blood. The fish in the Nile died, and the river smelled so bad that the Egyptians could not drink its water. Blood was everywhere in Egypt. But the Egyptian magicians did the same thing by their secret arts, and Pharaoh's heart became hard. He would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. Instead, he turned and went into his palace and did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile to get drinking water, because they could not drink the water of the river. Seven days passed after the Lord struck the Nile. So thanks for staying with me. I know that was a long passage, but I do think it's helpful for you to see uh, the entire picture before we move on. And so I love the way that God works through circumstances in the Bible, the way he weaves the word into our lives and into our hearts. And so the last time I was up here, I preached on Genesis 50, when Joseph forgives his brothers in a scene where most of us would be tempted to have hardened hearts. And at the time, I had just finished reading a book called Gentle and Lowly, whose title comes from Matthew 11:28 and 29, which reads, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. If you read that book, I will give you extra credit after this message is over. So if you are looking for that type of soul rest, I encourage you to drink deeply from your Bible. Because in those pages is where you will encounter the living word, Jesus Christ. Written all over those pages is one story of a promise-keeping God, a God who promises not to fix all of your problems, but to never leave you. A God who reminds you that you are weak, but you are his. And as we've been learning in Exodus, God is the great I am, powerful enough to create miracles and plagues, but personal enough to know your name and loving enough to work through you in all things on behalf of every child of God. So no matter the state of your heart, the word of God is for you today and every day. And so the point of this message is that only Jesus can change the heart. And I'm going to approach this text a little differently. Rather than going through line by line, I'm going to look at three crucial questions while bouncing around a little bit in the text. And so think of today's message as the classic English assignment, everyone's favorite, the five-paragraph essay. So I just finished the introduction, complete with the thesis statement at the end. My body paragraphs will be the three questions, and then I'll end with an emotional conclusion that preys on your emotions in an attempt to manipulate you into crying tears of repentance. Sound good? As the kids are saying, let's go. So the first question is an obvious one, is what is a hardened heart? At the outset, I gave you a description of the biblical heart, but what does it mean for a heart to be hardened? Well, the beauty and the tragedy of the internet is that there are so many great resources. And early in the week, I came across an article in the Trinity Journal by Greg Beale, and it was entitled, Exegetical and Theological Consideration of the Hardening of Pharaoh's Heart in Exodus 4 through 14 and Romans 9. Unfortunately, I'm not smart enough to understand any of it, but I'm sure it had some really good stuff, so if you want to Google it after this, you can. What I did learn, though, is that a hardened heart is complicated. Since the heart represents the total response of a person to life around him or her, a hardness of heart thus describes a negative condition in which the person ignores, spurns, or rejects the gracious offer of God to be a part of his life. Further, a hardened heart is a deadness to God and his word and an indifference to others. And ultimately, the hardness of the human heart can only be repaired by the grace of God. It is only he who can restore us by taking away our heart of stone and giving us a heart of flesh. So if we look back to the three cases of heart hardening in chapter 7, we notice some slight differences. In one case, in verse 3, it reads, But I, God, will harden Pharaoh's heart. Yet in verse 13 and again in verse 22, it reads, Pharaoh's heart became hard. So what we see is that in one case, God himself is hardening Pharaoh's heart. And in the other two examples, there is a passive heart 
becoming hardened. Now, to be clear, Pharaoh was not an innocent or godly man. He was a brutal dictator overseeing the terrible abuse and oppression of the Israelites. And theologian John Stott builds on this when he writes, Neither here nor anywhere else is God said to harden anyone who had not first hardened himself. That Pharaoh hardened his heart against God and refused to humble himself is made plain in the story. So God's hardening of him was a judicial act, abandoning him to his own stubbornness. And our sense of righteousness agrees with this. We say Pharaoh was a bad dude, so he deserved his hardened heart. And while that may be true to us, Paul seems to say something entirely different in Romans 9, where he writes, Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. And then he goes on to say, But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, Why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? Kind of puts us into perspective, doesn't it? Complicating matters further is the example in Mark 6.52, which if you've been reading along in your study, you read that this week, and you probably highlighted hardened heart. Or not, maybe it was just me. So in Mark, we're reminded that it's not just the bad guys who have hardened hearts. After the disciples watched Jesus feed 5,000 people, the text says, for they had not understood about the loaves, their hearts were hardened. So how is the heart hardened? So let's start with Pharaoh's heart, which is made a bit more clear when we have some background information about Egyptian culture and religion. Many temples and tombs in ancient Egypt picture a heart weighing in a balance, and the Egyptian religion is rife with the principle of works righteousness. And this is highlighted in an Egyptian book called The Book of the Dead, in which the god of death calls for a heart to be weighed in the balance against a feather of righteousness. And if the heart was weighed down with evil deeds, it would tip the scales heavier than the feather of righteousness, and the god of death would send this person to his great destruction. And tied into the heart's righteousness is all the snake and staff imagery from verses 8 through 11. It reads, The Lord said, When Pharaoh says to you, Perform a miracle, then say to Aaron, Take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh, and it will become a snake. Aaron threw his staff down in front of Pharaoh and his officials, and it became a snake. And then sometimes we're tempted to skip over the next verse, but doing so would miss what God has in store for this scene. Verse 11 reads, Pharaoh then summoned wise men and sorcerers, and the Egyptian magicians also did the same things by their secret arts. Now this is admittedly weird. Not chapter 4, throw the foreskin on the ground weird, but weird nonetheless. 
Shout out to you guys who listened to Travis Stevens' message a few weeks ago. Good job, Travis. Now, Egyptians also believed that the serpent had divine power and authority. Ruling pharaohs always had an image of a serpent over their brows, and this served as a symbol of the pharaoh's majesty and deity. And in addition to the power of the serpent, we also know that pharaohs held a staff to display their rule. And what God does with these images is really pretty cool. Verse 12 reads, Each one threw down his staff, and it became a snake. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. So it's no accident that God takes these Egyptian images, the snake, the symbol of Pharaoh's power, and the staff, which represented Pharaoh's authority, and swallows them whole. And in doing so, God is not only asserting his sovereign authority over Pharaoh, he is making it clear in a way that both Israelites and Egyptians would have understood that Pharaoh's heart will be weighed, but that it's the Lord, the great I am, the God to Moses and the God to the Romans and the God to us will be the one to sit in judgment and not the other way around. And it's this idea of God's sovereign authority that extends down to us because there's a phrase that is repeated over and over again in Exodus that's helpful. So four times over two chapters, it reads that hardened hearts took place as the Lord had said. So whether it says Pharaoh hardened his heart or that his heart was hardened, In each case, it is happening as the Lord had said, which means behind the self-hardening and behind the being hardened is the plan and purpose of God. It is not described as a response to the evil things that Pharaoh is doing, but as a sovereign rule over him. This is what Paul was referring to in Romans 9 when he said, God has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. And so with that, let's transition to today's second question, which is the same question Moses asks God back in chapter 3, which is, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Or in other words, who am I? And I can't even explain how much I empathized with my guy Moses this week. This guy Moses who did not want to be the one to speak, who said, God, give it to my brother, right? But I'm probably not the only one in the room who has had insecurities or has felt inferior. And so this is where I'd ask you to let the text challenge you this week. So when you meet in small groups this week and you're asked the question, how does this passage apply to your life? I encourage you to be honest about your weaknesses with yourself, with your small group, and before God. So I have an uncommon last name, and people frequently misspell it or mispronounce it. And as a child, this led to some embarrassment. And even now, in the waiting room of the doctor's office, nine times out of ten, the nurse with the clipboard and the extra loud voice will incorrectly say my name. So she'll come to the door. Tim Pollock. And then I have to do the walk of shame 
back to the office in front of people, and, and I want to explain, that's actually not how you say my name, but there's no cool way to do that. So I just mumble over there. And so for any art fans, art fans out there, you may have heard of Jackson Pollock, whose unique splatter paint style drew both rave reviews, but also disdain. And as a kid, I didn't know much about him. But then in the year 2000, they made a movie about him. And, and wow, it turns out Jackson Pollock was a different type of guy. And so the movie was problematic for me for two, for two reasons. One, unfortunately, only about 1,000 people worldwide saw the movie, so it, so it didn't help with the pronunciation issue. And two, as it turns out, Jackson Pollock was most known for his volatile and reclusive personality and his lifelong struggle with alcoholism. And his finished products, while splattered, messy, and cigarette-stained, also were rugged and beautifully harmonious, creating a merger of what was a seemingly impossible dichotomy. And this is why his paintings are so interesting to me. And so even though I want to, I can't separate the artist from the painting. I can't have the painting and not the painter. I can't have the rugged, cool look without the messy look. And so to claim knowledge of Jackson Pollock, I have to own all of him. And it's the same with our faith, our dirty, messy faith. And that's what the Bible's genealogies remind us of. Not only do they remind us of the importance of names in the Bible, but they're also reminders that we wouldn't be here without them, imperfections and all. So yes, have an appreciation for your name, but your identity as a Christian is far more important. Your lineage to that famous politician or athlete or local butcher or the salesman or the weird painter, that is not what matters. What matters is your adoption into the lineage of the body of Christ. And as much as anyone, Moses understood the meaning of his name, but he didn't seem to grasp his purpose. At the heart of Moses' question, who am I, is fear. And much of that is likely based on his own insecurities, one of which is his age. Now at 80 years old, Moses thinks he's too old. He does not realize what God has planned for him. And Moses' life is three acts, each one at a perfect 40 years in length. Well-known pastor and evangelist D.L. Moody says this about Moses' life. Moses spent 40 years thinking he was somebody. Then he spent 40 years on the backside of the desert realizing he was nobody. Finally, he spent the last 40 years of his life learning what God can do with the nobody. A few weeks ago, Travis talked about the terrible twos from which Moses suffered. In addition to his age, Moses didn't think he was fit to lead. And since he wasn't a gifted speaker, he thought he was too weak. So what are your terrible twos? And if one of them is too old, God just may be getting started with you the same way he was getting started with Moses. And now Pharaoh, on the other hand, he does not suffer from the terrible twos. Back in chapter 5, he asks the third major question relating to this text. And it's, who is the Lord that I should obey him? And it's so important that I want to read it again. 
Who is the Lord that I should obey him? That's a pretty bold question. And I think what's so audacious about it is that it's a question that all of us ask at some point, even if subconsciously. For what else are we asking if we openly and defiantly sin in the face of God? Nevertheless, the Lord is happy to answer Pharaoh's question, and he does so by bringing the first plague of blood. So God turns the entire Nile River into blood, and in verse 19 it says, Blood will be everywhere in Egypt, even in vessels of wood and stone. It truly is a horrifying image and landscape. But the stench and the terrifying visuals are just the beginning. God has sent a righteous plague and justly sent upon the Egyptians, for they had stained the river with the blood of Hebrews' children. And now God has made that same river one of blood. Since Egypt went as the Nile went, by halting the river, God has halted the entire economy. And furthermore, the Nile was the Egyptians' chief idol, and the Egyptian priests would wash their wood and stone vessels in that same water. So blood has polluted every possible aspect of the Egyptians' lives, from their food and water to their livelihood and to the way that they worship. Now it does get a little sticky here because the Egyptian magicians, they've got some pretty cool tricks. In verse 22, it reads, but the Egyptian magicians did the same things by their secret arts, and Pharaoh's heart became hard. So hey, game respects game, right? Good job, sorcerer guys. You have some good players on your team. But you cannot outperform God. For God brings glory to himself with each passing plague. No matter how the magicians pulled off this act, their magic cannot and will not stand the test of time. So whereas their acts come from a place of secrecy and darkness, God's actions come from a place of love and mercy. And as chapter 7 comes to a close, God reminds us yet again that he is the promise keeper. Verse 25 reads, Seven days passed after the Lord struck the Nile. So in his mercy, and despite Pharaoh's hardened heart, God ends the plague of blood. And as the number seven frequently indicates completeness and restoration, God restores the Nile River by changing the blood back to water for a faithless people. And because the Bible is one story, the blood is just as significant to us as it was to the Egyptians, because the blood points to Christ. I love the hymn we sang this morning, which we'll have a chance to sing again, by the way, Nothing But the Blood of Jesus, which was written in 1876 by a minister and professor named Robert Lowry, who packed thick theology into just a few lines of music. And in particular, Lowry displays the gospel in this four-line verse. Nothing can for sin atone, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing good that I have done, nothing but the blood 
of Jesus. And so the way our brains work, you guys probably won't remember this message tomorrow or in three or four days, and that's not any self-deprecating way. It's just hard to retain that information. What you will likely remember, though, is that song. And so I encourage you, when we sing at the end, man, sing it with your soul and put it on repeat and play it this week and see what it does for you. But what Lowry does so expertly is he describes the blood atonement by the death of Jesus as explained in Hebrews 9, which says, How much more then will the blood of Christ cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. So when we sing of atonement, we are celebrating that sinful man is reconciled to a holy God through the man Jesus Christ, our mediator and our advocate. And so the same way the Egyptians poured blood out of their wooden vessels, God poured out his wrath for mankind onto his own son who took our sins to the cross. And in thinking about this message this morning, and I know it sounds weird to mention that I was thinking about this in the shower, but that's where I do all of my deepest thinking. Yes, we have a pretty thick water bill. I was thinking that God stops Abraham from taking his son, right? And when Moses says, I don't want to do this, God mercifully says, okay, I'll give it to your brother. And so to think about having to say no to his own son and taking that wrath for us and putting it on him, it's amazing. And so because of Jesus' sacrifice, God does not see our sins, but rather the righteousness of his son. And here's the best news, which we will celebrate in 40 days. Despite, despite the bloody crucifixion, Christ defeats death by walking out of the tomb three days later. And as I shared at the beginning of this message, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If that's good news, can I get an amen? amen? So when I think of the loss our church has suffered this past week, I'm reminded of a beautiful book called The Bruised Reed by Richard Sibbs, who's a Puritan theologian. The book is a reminder that we are all bruised, but Christ... but Christ will not break the bruised reed. Sibs expands on Psalm 147.3. I'm a crier, I'm sorry. He says, Jesus is a physician good at all diseases, but especially at the binding up 
of a broken heart. We have a lot of broken hearts in this room, and Jesus has compassion for each one. Now, biologically, the heart has two sides. One side receives the blood, and the other side distributes it. Are you letting the blood of Christ do its work in your heart? Are you receiving forgiveness but not giving it? Are you letting the heart work as the muscle it's intended to be, or have you let it atrophy? If so, my encouragement is to ask Jesus to change your heart. A few days ago was Ash Wednesday, the beginning of a season known as Lent, which is a 40-day period in the metaphorical wilderness. And it's a journey that always leads back to the cross. Lent is an invitation to put down everything we have picked up in order to take hold of the only one who can truly satisfy our heart's deepest longing. It's a call to turn back and to refresh our souls. We say this every week, but the gospel isn't just for lost people. The gospel is for each one of us, and God is giving us an invitation to respond in obedience. So how will you respond? Where is God nudging you toward obedience? If you're sick with bitterness, if you're separated or estranged from God, if you are facing an addiction, if you simply need to forgive someone, or if you've never accepted Christ as your Savior, let Jesus in. Don't use him as a rental. Give him total ownership of your thoughts, your hurts, and your life. For when we are brokenhearted, or when we are hardened in heart, what compels us, what heals us, what saves us? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the people of Good News Church, and thank you for this passage in Exodus 7, what it's done for my own soul. I pray that these words impact the words of our church body. I pray that we continue to face life with repentance, a repentance and a posture towards you. I pray that as we continue to read your word and to be in life as a community with other believers, that we would continually draw questions from other people about our faith. And God, I pray that we would feel that nothing but the blood of Jesus is real in our hearts, in our bones, and in our souls. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.